Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to all, all of you joining us from Calvary, Quakertown. It's good to have you all with us as well. You noticed in the video that we're in a series that we're calling The King. We've been kind of subtitling that, The Last and Final King. We started the series a few weeks ago by looking at the beginning and the end of Matthew's gospel. We looked at the resume. Back then, they didn't do resumes. They did genealogies. Then we looked at the mission at the end. We often call that the Great Commission. Then the second week, we looked at John the Baptist. He shows up on the scene to introduce Jesus to all the onlookers, and he calls the people to repent, to turn from, and to turn to him. Uh, last week, we took a break from the series. Uh, Carlos walked us through how we can live as disciples and followers of Jesus in the cultural context and political context we're in. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the big issue, the main game behind all the other games. We're going to look at discipleship. Now, some of you are thinking, didn't we look at discipleship the first week? Yeah. Discipleship is one of the main themes that runs not only through Matthew, but through the entire Bible. We started, remember, by looking at the beginning and the end, the end of Matthew's gospel is where we find the Great Commission, and that really is a statement of discipleship. But here's the problem. We love either or, don't we? Americans, we kind of cut our teeth on either or. It's either this or that. The problem is the ancient world, particularly the ancient biblical world, prefers both end. We often misunderstand the Great Commission because of our either-or thinking. So let me uh, kind of clear up a couple of um, um, misunderstandings. So we put the verses up there. Uh, here's what the Great Commission says. Jesus speaking to his disciples after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, reminding them of their mission. And here's what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, here's where the first either or comes in. We like to think, and churches often say, it's either evangelism or discipleship. You ever notice that? And so we even have titles. He's a pastor, she's a director, she's a pastor of evangelism and discipleship. No, no, no. We're splitting into an either or what the Bible doesn't split. So here's how you should read the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's a hard stop. That's our mission. We are to make disciples. In fact, I remember uh, hearing often uh, as I was kind of growing up, if we fail to make disciples, we fail. That's the mission, to make disciples. Then what Jesus does in the Great Commission, he then describes how we make disciples. How do we make them? Baptizing and teaching to obey. Baptizing is helping people experience life in Jesus. That's what we call evangelism. So evangelism isn't separate from discipleship. It's part of discipleship. How do we make disciples? We baptize. We help people be introduced to experiencing life in Christ. And then what do we do? We teach them to obey. There's another either or we make. You're either into learning and study or you're into doing. But wait a minute. We can't make an either or out of a both end. 
A disciple isn't someone who just sits alone with the Bible and studies, studies, studies. Or a disciple isn't someone who just goes and implements and is an activist. No, evangelism and discipleship are one. Discipleship's the big category. Evangelism's part of it. It's both and, not either or. And it isn't just knowing and learning. It's doing and living. Teaching to observe. It isn't just teaching to fill our heads so we can teach someone else. It's teaching and living those things out as we teach others to observe as well. So Jesus kind of comes at the end of Matthew's gospel, reminds them of the big mission, and that's where we're going to end. But I want, I want to show you that discipleship doesn't just show up at the end. It's one of the key three themes all the way through Matthew. So here's what we're, we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at two passages where Jesus calls people to follow him. He's going to say, hey, you guys, come and follow me. Be disciples, be followers. Well, the first of those is found in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, whatever you use to uh, read Scripture, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and we're going to read about Christ calling his first disciples. He's going to call Peter, Andrew, James, and John, those four. Um, So I'll read it. You can follow along. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know what that section of Scripture really reminds us of? Jesus calls average Joes. Jesus calls everyday, uninitiated, typical, normal people. Jesus didn't go to the Ivy League universities of the day and only call the best and the brightest. He didn't go to the world-class seminaries and choose those at the top of the class. He didn't contract with the biggest headhunting firm to get the best leaders. Jesus went to the fishing docks to a group of people that were average, below average. No one else would have called these people. And not only is it kind of radical that Jesus would go to the average, Jesus also turns calling and turns discipleship kind of on its head. Usually, if you wanted to be a disciple, you would identify a rabbi that you wanted to follow. You would then seek that rabbi out. You'd kind of make application. You'd fall at his feet. Please, 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 can I be your disciple? And then the rabbi would either accept you or reject you. Jesus is the initiator. Jesus isn't waiting for all the applications to come in and he kind of goes through them and picks them. Jesus goes out onto the fishing docks and he invites these typical average people to come and follow him. Oh, but it gets worse than that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9 and we're going to see another passage where Jesus calls somebody. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, now that's the Matthew that wrote the book we're reading, sitting at the tax collector's booth. You probably heard that, Matthew, his other name is Levi, Jewish name's Levi. He is a tax collector, right? 
Jesus says to Matthew, sitting in his tax collector's booth, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus calls the average and the unlikely, Matthew chapter 4, the fisherman, Jesus calls the despised and the disgusting in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is a tax collector. Now, that may not mean a lot to you. Yeah, tax season's coming. If you're an accountant, you're probably already working on that. You're starting to get your you know, stuff in the mail as you get your tax. We don't take too kindly or look too um, you know, um, proudly at tax. Yeah, but in Jesus' day, it was a whole lot different. Tax collectors were despised and considered to be disgusting because, remember, the Jewish nation was under the thumb of Rome it was Rome collecting the taxes. The tax collectors were employed and working for Rome. And they were making a great living basically by extorting money from their own people, the Jews. Which means if you were a tax collector, you gave up your ability to worship in a synagogue. You weren't allowed to go to temple. Your family probably disowned you. You were cut away from Jewish society you did all of that, basically, to make a really good living. Tax collectors made a lot of money, but they sacrificed community and connection to the religious heritage and the religious community in order to do it. I was trying to think in my mind, what kind of jobs do we have in our day that would be uh, similar to maybe a tax collector? Do you ever watch Parking Wars? How would you like to be in a major city, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, how would you like to be a parking lot attendant or a parking uh, officer where you go around and all day ticket people for parking once the meters run out or if there are six inches over the line, you have to give them a ticket. How would you like that? You get nothing but criticized, dirty looks, people scream and yell, maybe your life's threatened all day, day in and day. That would have been Matthew. Matthew was despised. He was considered disgusting. He had a terrible job. He was worse than somebody working for the parking authority. And Jesus says to Matthew, hey, come follow me. Imagine what Peter, Andrew, James, and John must have thought when Jesus brings him back. Jesus, don't you know how to like build a team? You don't, build, you don't bring this guy back into the fold. You know, it's bad enough. I got these other three guys that smell like fish. Now you bring in a tax collector. Jesus calls the average and the unlikely, the despised and the disgusting. That's kind of good news, isn't it? Um, he calls people just like us, the average and the unlikely, those that are despised and looked down on by others. We are the ones that Jesus calls. And that's great news. Jesus doesn't call the top shelf only, the leaders, the cream of the crop. Jesus calls the average, unlikely, the despised and the disgusting. Well, it's kind of interesting that uh, right before Matthew chapter 4, uh, the verses that we read, is um, 
is a verse about repentance. I'm not sure if you noticed that, but uh, if, if you put the next slide up. So 417, um, and if you're reading in your Bible, you'll notice you kind of, kind of have big, bold print there. Jesus calls his first disciples. Now, that big, bold print um, was not in the original. Like, like Matthew didn't write that part. Uh, the big, bold print tells us what's coming. And it's really good that the editors did that because, you know, oh, we're entering a new section now, new subjects coming up. But sometimes the big, bold print and the separations kind of do more harm than good. Um, that separation really isn't there. So with the calling of Peter, James, and John, Peter, Andrew, James, and John in your head, with the calling of Matthew kind of still in your head, here's the verse that precedes the callings. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Then immediately he goes and calls the four. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about repentance. Repent means to turn, to turn from and to turn to. What is he calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John and Matthew to do? He's calling them to repent. They've been investing their lives, giving all of their time and energy, building their careers, working on their fishing business, climbing the tax collecting ladder. Jesus shows up and says, hey guys, you need to repent. Turn from the things you're giving your life to and turn to following me what you should give your life to. So Jesus speaks of repentance and he calls them to repentance. Um, now, we often think of repentance as being sorry for sin, and there is a sense in which that's true, but repentance is just a turn, and he's calling these guys to turn from what they've been living to and turn to what they should be living to, and that's following Jesus. He calls them to repentance right after he says he's come to call people to repentance. Well, Jesus calls. He calls the unlikely. He calls the average. He calls the despised. He calls us to repent, to turn from it, to turn to. Um, and I probably need, need to say at this point, because some of you uh, may be getting nervous. Jesus will not call most of us to leave our career and go do this. He's probably not going to call you to go to a distant part of the world. Some of you in this room, he may call you to do that. Some of you online, some of you in Quaker, he may be calling you to do that. For the majority, it won't. But I do know this. Jesus will call you to experience a disturbance in your life. He's not going to show up and life will just continue as it was. There will be a difference. There will be a pretty big difference. It may not be career. It may not be geography. It may not be, you know, where you live, etc. But there will be a disturbance when Jesus calls. Well, Jesus calls. What does it mean then to follow? And uh, I, I'll confess to you. I sat down earlier in the week and I began to map out some things, but, you know, reading the passage. Yeah, so what is it that Matthew 28 calls us to and, you know, Matthew 4, Matthew 9, and I came up with a list of 10 things. I'm not going to give you all 10 because we'd be here too long. I'm going to give you five. And we're going to have to go quickly, but I'm going to give you five and you can kind of fill in some of the gaps. What does it mean to follow? What's Jesus calling us to? And if we're going to follow, what exactly does that mean? Notice Peter, Andrew, James, and John almost miraculously, immediately follow. They give up and they follow. Matthew gives up his parking authority job and he follows. I mean, that's radical. You shake your head and you scratch your head and say, how in the world can they do that? Calling and following. Well, one of the first things following always means is that we will yield. 
yield. You know, when I hear the word yield, I always think of driving. And when I think of driving and yielding, I get discouraged, angry, and anxious. And uh, if you haven't experienced already, you will probably within the next 45 minutes or so, you will be called upon to yield as you're pulling out of the parking lot of Calvary Church. If uh, you're in Quakertown, you will be called to yield when you leave the parking lot. If you're online sometime today, you're going to be asked to yield if you're in the car. What does it mean to yield? Someone else has the right of way. I hate that. And so when I leave almost every day, I usually leave on the 113 exit uh, at church. And so when I get to that, I know I have the, to yield to the cars on 113. I usually gauge it. If they're past the driveway, you know, towards Silverdale, I will cut ahead of them. If they're a little closer than that, I'll wait because I don't want a big accident, make a mess in the road. But I time it because I don't want to yield. On occasion, I'll even go out the other exit thinking, I won't have to yield as much there. Problem is there, you get a red light. And if you're going straight, then you have to yield. If you're making a right-hand turn, sometimes I want to go straight, but if it's red and nobody's coming, I'll make the right so I don't have to yield. Um, Yielding, you've got to give other people the right away. Jesus calls you to follow. Make no mistake. If you're going to follow Jesus, he calls you to yield. He has the right of way. Um, yield's kind of a nice way to say it. I, I hesitated to put this word on the slide. Jesus calls us to surrender. That's what yield means. When you come to the yield sign, when you come to the end of the driveway, you're going to the 113, Bethlehem Pike, when you're exiting Quakertown, and you come to the drive, you have to yield, you surrender your right to go to the person going the other way. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to yield. I'm the king. I call the shots. You yield to my plan. Put yourself into Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthews. See? They spent lots of time and energy money building their careers, their reputation. The fishermen built a client base. They were developing a business. Jesus shows up and says, hey guys, follow me. I'm the king, you must yield to what I want you to do. Um, here's something you, you may not have thought of. Who was in the boat with James and John? Their dad. Imagine what um, Zebedee's thinking sitting in the boat. Um, there go my two sons. I was going to give them the business. They're working up the ladder. This business is theirs. They just left. I mean, they're not just leaving the business, they're leaving the family business. What's going to happen to the family business? What's going to happen with Matthew? Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to yield. Now look, I'm not exactly sure what that means for you, but I do know this. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to yield. He has the right of way. If he asks you to add something to your life and you don't want to, if you're following, you'll add it to your life. If he wants to cut something out of your life to excise it and you don't want to, if you're going to yield, you're going to follow, you're going to cut it from your life. That's what it means to yield. Here's another way of saying the same thing. If you're going to follow Jesus, he becomes your priority. He becomes your number one priority. Um, and so it's easy to think about Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. So let's do this. Um, here's the priority. Peter, Andrew, 
I will be a higher priority than the fish. I'll be a, pri a higher priority than the boat. I'll be a higher priority than your clients. I'll be a higher priority than your reputation, than your career, than your clients, than your customers. I am your top priority. He says to Matthew, Matthew, I know you've given up a lot. In your mind, you may be experiencing lots of persecution for your job. Yeah, but what have you decided you want? You want money. You want to be able to buy things that no one else can buy. Yeah, you're going to be looked down on by your people, the Jews, but you're going to be esteemed by lots of people at the upper end of the socioeconomic ladder. I'm calling you to follow me, turn your back on all that. I will be a higher priority than your money. I'll be a higher priority than your career. I'll be a higher priority than your reputation. Can you make that statement? I know that uh, we were kind of asked to fast this week from something. In a sense, here's what we were all asked to do. Um, yield some time, some energy in your life. Make Jesus and following him in prayer a higher priority than some of the other priorities in your life. And here's my guess. Some of you couldn't do it for the whole week. Those other priorities kind of find themselves bubbling up, right? Those other priorities don't want to lose their top spot. But if we're going to follow Jesus, we yield to him. He always has the right of way. And he becomes our top priority. Wow. That's what it means to follow. It's not just yield and not just priority. It also means that we will uh, experience, what's the next word? Process. You ever think about it this way? Put yourself into a Peter, Andrew, James, and John shoes, right? You're on the dock. Jesus says, come follow me. We have the luxury of knowing what the rest of the book says, right? We know that Jesus goes on to preach really cool sermons, and Jesus does miracles that kind of cause everybody to be surprised and shocked and kind of mouths drop open. We know that Jesus, you know, his popularity is going to soar. Then he's going to kind of decline a little bit. We know Jesus is going to die on the cross. We know Jesus will be raised from the dead. And we know these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're going to make a name for themselves in the book of Acts, and we're going to name our kids after them, and right there, they're going to make a great reputation. But if you were on the dock that day with Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they had no idea where Jesus was going. He says, come follow me. They don't know where he's going. Is he going to Jerusalem? Is he going to you know, stay in Galilee? Is he going to Gentile territory? Is he going back to Egypt? Is he going into the desert? Where's he going? They had no idea where he was going. None. There is a sense in which we don't know where he's going either. We sometimes have the expression, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. We have the expression, well, you know, if you're kind of stuck on what you should do, ask what Jesus would do. Yeah, here's the Bible. We have no idea what Jesus would do. Jesus does the craziest things, right? We don't know where, they didn't know where he was going. Jesus just, and it's a process. You know, we live in a world where Everybody wants to climb the corporate ladder and become COO, CFO, CEO. Everybody wants to become leaders. Leadership, you know, it's kind of like the biggest thing today. Notice, Jesus never calls anybody to be a leader. Jesus calls people to be followers. He doesn't say, follow me, and then you'll be really good leaders. No, he says, follow me, and you never stop following me. I'm the shepherd, and we never stop being sheep. 
We never become shepherds or we become shepherds under the chief shepherd. We're always followers. We never give that up. It's a process. And even the whole idea of fishing. Fishing's kind of a process too, right? I know people that fish an awful lot. I mean, they're like committed fisher people. Fishing's a process. I don't know anybody that's ever said, you know what? I really mastered that fishing thing. I'm done. I checked that box. I, I, I fished. I'm done. No, fishing's a process, right? Um, you kind of never give up fishing. You're always kind of fishing. And, and there's kind of a, an interesting analogy in the whole fishing thing that we lose sight of because our cultures are so different. The sea, right, the sea in, in, in biblical times, especially to Jews, the sea was not a safe place. The sea was chaotic. The sea was dark and dangerous and deadly. Every time the sea kind of appears, particularly in the Old Testament and even often in the New Testament, bad stuff always happens on the sea. The Red Sea, people drown, right? And God is still, but people are scared walking through. Jonah, sea's raging. They get stuck in the sea. Jesus on the sea with the disciples. The sea's raging. Yeah, sea is always dark and dangerous, chaotic and deadly, right? Sea's not good. What does Jesus call the disciples to do? To lift people from the chaos, the darkness, the dangerous environment into the environment of light and life. Now, that's opposite of what fishing does, right? Fishing, we take fish from life to death. Jesus tweaks the metaphor. As we fish for people, we take people from death and danger and chaos into light and life. Yeah, that's what, and that's a never-ending process, isn't it? I mean, you don't finish that. So, oh, yeah, I'm, I, I did that. I, I influenced people to move from down. I'm done that. No, no, no. It's a process. Never ends. And we do this in community. Uh, we kind of hinted at this before. When Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, any other disciples to follow, he calls them to follow together. They be doing, they have to do that together. That means that when Matthew shows up, he's going to room with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then you're going to have Simon the Zealot show up, right? He's the um, Antifa guy, right? Uh, he's, he's the terrorist wanting to, you know, bomb the government. He shows up, and here's Matthew that works for the government, and they're all together. What's Jesus saying? When you follow me, I'm the top priority. All of your little differences have to be put on the side. You yield to me. I'm your number one priority. It's a process. You never arrive, and we do this thing together. We move in unity and love and commitment to each other. I want to end by uh, talking about mission. And that was kind of where we started with the Great Commission. I uh, saw that uh, Hank Aaron died this week. And it got me thinking about contracts because the Eagles now have a new coach, not announced officially, it'll probably come this week. And Carson Wentz is in trouble and here are all these other things. And I got thinking about uh, professional athlete contracts. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen one. Uh, they are literally hundreds of pages long. Uh, some of you may not have ever read a book as long as one of these. Most of the athletes, they don't read them either, right? <laughs> That's why they have agents and lawyers. I mean, giant contracts. Every professional contract lists a number of things that those professional athletes are not allowed to do. Here are a few things. Um, 
if you're a football player, et cetera, you can't ride motorcycles, you can't go skiing, you can't play pickup sports. Um, if you're, here's a weird one. Most baseball players that has in their Major League Baseball contract, they cannot do log rolling. Don't ask me who would want to do log, but they can't do log rolling. And, and, and here's the reason. Those things are too risky. Don't risk not being able to play the main game because you're having fun doing some other things. Or another way to say it, don't risk the main game playing a pickup game. Hmm. Here's how I think I'd say that to us and to me. My guess is, is we uh, play pickup games. Maybe your pickup game's your career. Work hard at that, right? Give your time and energy to your career. Give your time and energy to um, you believe God's, whatever God's calling you to, um, you know, politically, be committed to your political party, be committed to education, be committed to these particular things. Nothing wrong with all of that, but don't miss the real game. Here's the really hard thing for us. The main game is making disciples. Dallas Willard says uh, discipleship would be better understood as apprenticeship in our world. Don't risk losing your reputation, losing all your time and energy playing pickup games so you don't have anything left to play. The real game, the real game is making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. That main game is eternal and transforming. The pickup games, enjoy yourself. Don't risk missing the main game because you've gotten injured or injured your reputation playing a pickup game. Father, we give you thanks that years ago now, you walked along a, a fishing pier and seemingly out of the blue, you called four guys to follow and they dropped their nets and they followed. Wow. A little while later, you walked up to a tax collector's booth and said, follow, and Matthew dropped his checkbook and his receipts, and he followed. Lord, I don't know what following means for each of us, for anybody else in the room, but I do know you call us to follow, to be apprentices. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to not live with an either-or, but help us live with a both-end kind of mindset, and help us to never sacrifice, never forfeit the real game for pickup games. We pray in the name of Jesus, who's called us to his team. Amen.